This podcast is a proud member of the Lamb Podcasting Network. Find the network at largeassmovieblogs.com. Mad Band Downright Strange Showcase. My name's Edward Jones and this is episode 47. Here continuing our track for the 1001 film introduction to Colton Obscure Cinema, which is the Mad Band and Downright Strange list. Tonight we kick off 2017 with a Cronenberg double as we take in two films from the seemingly forgotten period for its work, which falls re- really between the remake of The Fly and its mainstream success of A History of Violence. As such, we would be questioning why Jeremy Irons wasn't nominated for an Oscar for his betrayal of the identical twins in 1988's Dead Ringers, before jumping forward to arguably the greatest film year ever for 1999's Existence. But my co-host this evening not only runs the classic film blog Jenny's in Classic Film, but also set about building her own podcast empire with both the Disney-based Walt Sent Me and more recently the classic cinema-themed Ticklish Business. It of course gives me great pleasure to welcome back to the show Kristen Lopez. Thank you for having me back. It's always a pleasure to have you back, Kristen. I mean, obviously... Previously, when you've been on, we've talked about classic cinema before when we looked at like freaks and cat people. Uh, we went slightly trashy and looked at showgirls last time you were on and welcome to the dollhouse. And now we're obviously on to Cronenberg, um, whose name, much like the word boulangerie, just summons the imagery of something <laughs> so naughty and delightfully dark. And his work, I mean, this is work obviously based around mutation, illness and disease. Um, a lot of it coming from, obviously from his father who suffered from brittle bone syndrome and for somehow this has carried on not only to his own work but with his son's work as well as we saw obviously with uh, his son's debut Brandon Cronenberg uh, with Antivirals. So I mean Cronenberg. I did not know any of that. Apparently Cronenberg's dad and I have something in common. <laughs> yeah um, I mean Cronenberg's got this also got this history of whenever he shows up in a film he's always playing the doctor. Like yeah. he, sh- he shows up in Nightbreed as the serial killing uh, doctor slash psych- psychologist. He's in Alias again, playing the psychologist. I remember, yeah, I remember when he did Alias, and I was like, really? Yes, you know, promoting the values of Facon. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I have to say, I miss I miss the Cronenberg of old. I know he's trying to branch out yeah. into more, I guess classier types of cinema you know with how much people loved a history of violence and how it was something different that wasn't esoteric and gross and since then i think he's stayed a bit too comfortable in that like uh i think a dangerous method is fine yeah but it's just fine um i have not seen cosmopolis or maps to the stars which i know people certain people really like or really hate so I yeah I I miss I miss the '80s Cronenberg I miss gross medical Marvel mixed with like weird sex and everything. Yeah, I think with Cronenberg, I mean he's obviously on this social satire kick at the moment, which obviously started with History of Violence, which was then obviously followed by Eastern Promises. Yeah, um, a dangerous method's kind of like the odd one there because obviously that's his bio 
pick about uh, the relationship between Freud and Jung um, and their sort of relationship, really. And it was a fascinating piece. I think it played more to psychology students than your average moviegoer and certainly wasn't helped by a certain English actress's uh, wooden performance, should we say. From there, obviously, we had the adaptation of Cosmopolis, um, which, much like the source novel, was... I think people either loved it or hated it. I found it a bit hard to determine what was going on, but it was very pretty to look at. And uh, certainly Maps from the Stars, again, it's sort of driving home that social satire point. And I think it really came from the fact that when you look at his films, and certainly when he was playing around with those uh, those more icky subjects, I mean, there was really nothing left in the box. It's kind of like why Peter Jackson moved on from doing Splatter to do like Lord of the Rings and Heavenly Creatures and uh, The Frighteners, really, because there was nothing left in the box. Uh, for that particular subject, I had to go and find a new bag. And I personally like the social satire, but at the same time, I appreciate the value of the, these uh, sort of sticky early years. Yeah, uh, for for me, my Cronenberg journey started with the new stuff, and then I went back, I think. Because I, okay. I, prob- I probably saw The Fly and History of Violence relatively similar times. I know The Fly was the first one I saw. And then I went back and, and saw everything else. But um, yeah, it wasn't until I saw what I call the, the Jeremy Irons double feature, which is <laughs> Dead Ringers and M. Butterfly, that I was like, Cronenberg and I are biffs, man, because we seem to have similar tastes. Um, and since then, I, I think I, there's only a couple Cronenbergs that I haven't seen. I still, again, need to see his latest. Um, I've, I've, I think Rabbit is still on the list. I have to see that. Okay. Um, and I think Naked Lunch is on there as well, which I haven't seen. Yeah, I think certainly looking, I mean, M. Butterfly, that's one of those, like Fast Company, it's one of those oddities on his sort of resume. I mean, we're very surprised it's, that he did that movie. It's very funny to put it next to A Dangerous Method because both of them on the surface seem similar because they're both period pieces. Yeah. Only M. Butterfly... And I read the original play that, that they were adapting, and I rewatched it again probably about three or four weeks ago, and I said, I have no idea how that, I think that was like, what, 93? How that was greenlit, because that's a definite, like, shot. I mean, the, you if you've read the play, you know what the twist is, yeah. and it probably helps that it came out around the same time as The Crying Game. Um, and it might have actually been overshadowed, I think, by that film a little bit. But, yeah, it's remarkable to rewatch that and just be like, it's a beautiful film. It's beautifully filmed, but it is both Cronenbergian and not. You know, I think that's its big problem is that it wants to adapt the play as well as be Cronenberg's own thing. Yeah, it's I think this is the the thing. Cronenberg's got such a distinct style. The same way that, like, any of the master directors you can sort of, like, look at, even if we're just focusing purely on genre cinema, such as we know what a Cronenberg uh, movie is supposed to look like, the same way we know what, a, like, a Carpenter movie is supposed to look like. These directors have very visual sort of styles, and the, somehow Cronenberg has never sort of fallen into this pitfall of, oh, I have to just do this one sort of thing. He's been able to somehow naturally evolve his career as he's gone from film to film obviously the period of films we're sort of looking at this sort of weird 
period where he kind of fell off the map and I think for some reason even Cronenberg fans don't tend to talk about these movies which as we said fall between the fly and uh, history of violence I mean there are obviously exceptions to that rule such as Naked Lunch which obviously has the William Burroughs connection there and much like Crash which obviously had much controversy surrounding it um, I've had some people had uh, one of my uh, friends Heather over on the bonus material podcast she actually describes Crash as a perfect date movie um i don't, don't know whether she'd like to combine that with oh should we go for a drive after this or something but yeah I, there's something about these films in this period they're not bad films so I, it's so hard to understand why they're so overlooked um but but before we obviously get into that, i mean obviously you said you started with the fly i mean was it the connection obviously to the classic cinema piece the the original b movie the fly that sort of drew you in that you wanted to draw comparisons between the two or was it not at all i i saw the 80s fly before i saw the original and i saw it because i was told that it was awesome and ridiculously gross which (laughs) i probably saw when i was about 14 15 so that was that was good enough for me and it is gross and it's also amazing. And then I went back and I saw the Vincent Price, Herbert Marshall version, yeah. which is fine. It's very steeped in the 1950s Vincent Price 3D phenomenon, something like House of Wax. And I mean, it's again, it's an entertaining film, but Cronenberg, I think, commits to it and presents it about as serious as you can get. You know, it's hard not to see the 50s version as hokey, especially at the end with that iconic, you know, help me, help me. I mean, <laughs> it's it's very hard to play it straight. And Cronenberg does straight about as good as he can. And, you know, I love how almost all of Cronenberg's movies, it, it's why Heather says, you know, Crash is a, a date movie. Because when you wipe away the blood and the viscera, all of his movies are about relationships and the issues that kind of come from that. Like, The Fly is about, you know, a couple and what they're going to do with this medical malady. I mean, really, The Fly syndrome is no different than, like, knowing your significant other has cancer and that they're doomed to die um, at a certain point. Only, you know, there's just more, like, up-chucking and, um, you know, limbs falling off. Um, You know, uh, The Brood is uh, essentially a horrible divorce. It's Kramer versus Kramer only with, you know, psychological, uh, uh, psychosomatic, you know, beings that kill people. Um, So, so yeah, for me, The Fly was a great gateway. And and it's probably the goriest Cronenberg movie I've seen. Um, Mind you, I'm still missing a couple. Um, But, but it's... It's a great scripted film that works towards telling you a story about a relationship while playing that fly angle as, like, this is totally serious. This could happen in reality. This isn't strange at all. Oh, I totally understand what what you mean. And I came at it the complete opposite way, obviously, being a B-movie kid coming up. I mean, I saw the original version of The Fly, 1950s version. And my wife actually didn't believe that it was a real movie because they actually showed the clip of where they had the big reveal when he's got the huge fly head in uh, an episode of The Exorcist. And she's like, that's not a real movie. And I was like, unfortunately, it is. But <laughs> you kind of buy it in the 1950s version the same way that you buy the whole way that Cronenberg chooses to look at the fly. And I mean, 
The Fly itself is a fascinating movie because it can be looked at so many ways. I know a lot of people have said that because it's obviously from the 80s, so it's like this representation of AIDS. But really, it's a representation of getting older. When we look at the way Jeff Goblin, his mutation and the fact he's walking around on crutches and he's hobbled over, he's showing the signs of someone who's getting old, whose body's become frailer. It's not really got that connection of AIDS, even though we've obviously got this idea of this foreign body invading and mutating the cells of it, of Goblin's body and obviously turning him into this man-fly hybrid, the Brundlefly, if you will. Um, and I think that film worked in more surprising by the fact that Goblin and Gina Davis were in an actual relationship at the time and the fact that they were able to transfer that heat over onto the screen, which normally doesn't work because actors are too comfortable around each other to generate on-screen heat. So the fact they're able to portray a convincing relationship on screen was just really a more credit to Cronenberg uh, and uh, his it, the way he, well, he's able to get out of his actors, really. And I think it's one of Goldblum's best, certainly. Even though yeah, it is kind of you bring up a, a good point. A lot of people say Cronenberg's film is body horror. Which is true to an extent, but he's not only is he fascinated with medicine, but he's really fascinated with and we're just going to get technical here. He's really fascinated with penetration, <laughs> specifically <laughs> like male, how, how that works. Um, you see it with existence um, to a significant degree with Jude Law's character. You see it in Dead Ringers as well. Um, he's really into and it. And that's why I think. You know, you could make the argument that the fly is an AIDS allegory, but he continues that well into the 90s. And I think, if anything, he's very fascinated with this concept of masculinity. And you could also make the argument for M. Butterfly as well. He's very fascinated with this concept of masculinity and dabbling with homosexuality. And does that make you less of a man? And, and how does that work in a society that is very confused and mired in this idea of heterosexuality. You know, if anything, Cronenberg, I think, is was talking about homosexual, you know, relationships and acceptance well before anybody else was. Oh, definitely. I think there is no... there is. I think there's very few subjects and very few ideas that are taboo to Cronenberg. He sort of exists in his own unique little bubble where he can create like whole new mutations and can give us all these interesting spins on, on different ideas. I think he's because he's spent so long establishing himself in this world, he is essentially untouchable. He's kind of like Tarantino in that way. And the fact that you go into a Cronenberg movie kind of knowing what to expect. Um, and it's always kind of more of a surprise when he doesn't give it to us than when he does. So no one is going into a Cronenberg movie, not expecting to be, I know, kind of disgusting and turned on at the same time. Same way that no one turns up to a Tarantino movie expecting people to be politely spoken. So, and I've just, as we said, it's just the his approach to ideas. And I think throughout his films, they've constantly shown to be autobiographical. When we look at The Brood, I mean, he made that when he was going through his divorce. So there's certainly elements already. I mean, as you mentioned already, like the Kramer versus Kramer element to The Brood. Um, I mean, he openly commented he loves the fact when he, when the uh, main character in The Brood uh, is strangling his ex-wife. That's probably one of his favorite scenes in the film. So Yeah, it's funny, it's funny to watch something like The Brood opposite something like True Lies, which James Cameron made when he was getting divorced. And, you know, both of those movies don't necessarily have the best views of women. 
But Cronenberg at least makes an effort of showing something passing for neutrality, or at least he's wearing his his own personal bias on his sleeve. Whereas I think you know James Cameron is kind of saying, "Well, I'm giving everybody the best of both worlds, but I'm not going to acknowledge how personal this is for me." <laughs> yeah, I mean, True Lies went in some weird directions i mean it's oh it's yeah a, it's, a, it's a spy movie uh then we suddenly got arnie ha- following his wife who's having an affair on him and it, i mean that whole middle section came completely out of left field and yeah. worse still the first time i saw true lies my, i was watching it around a friend's house and his parents were kind of more should we say uh more of a sensor than my own parents were so we got to the bit where he's um he goes to the hotel with his his, his wife and he's supposed to be watching right. the light dance then they cut that bit they like said oh you're gonna go and get changed and then you can watch the end of the movie what well, little knowing that they actually fast forward the whole lap dance sequence so we rejoin the movie they're suddenly on a plane it's like you're what like, the hell happened something here so, so i watched it like i said watched it several years later and they suddenly like got this whole new segment where jamie lee curtis is there <laughs> putting on this whole um rather nice dance sequence it's like why the hell did i not know that was there before so yeah, true. True Lies. I always say is really good for the first half, and then just kind of perfunctory the second half. I don't. I don't know. I just find it a joy the whole way through. It reminds. It's uh, obviously based on Le Le Magnificent. Both films, should we say, just wildly different than other due to obviously Arnie's influence there. But yeah, I, I don't know. There's something just so enjoyably daft about True Lies, and the fact is, Aunt Malik playing a terrorist. Which <laughs> exactly. is not something you get to see every day, so. <laughs> but onto the first, obviously, our selections. We're going to go in reverse order here. So we're going to obviously start with Exodus Stones. This was a first time watch for yourself, I'm right in saying, Kristen? Yes, I'd never see, I'd heard of this, but I'd never watched it. Okay. Um, I mean, this is a film which didn't, wasn't certainly held by its misleading marketing, which kind of marked it out to be kind of like a sci-fi action thriller, when it's actually something a lot slower paced, a little bit different than that. Um, the film itself is based in this alternate future, where a game designer finds herself targeted by assassins, and basically is forced to go on the run with her publicity manager. And in doing so, finds that the game that she's created has been damaged and the only way to test the game is by going into and playing the game itself however in doing so the worlds between reality and fiction become all the more blurred obviously this being a Cronenberg movie we're talking about fleshy gaming pods we're talking about alternate worlds where the special in the Chinese restaurant also turns into a bio gun and we're also seeing a reference to Salomon Rushdie's uh, own personal self-inflicted isolation after the publication of the the Satanic Verses saw him having to go into hiding when he was targeted by various religious groups seen here through our, one of our lead characters basically having to go on the run for daring to uh, essentially go against God by creating these bio games. But in many ways, this film can be seen as kind of like what Cronenberg uh, gave us with Videodrome for video and TV here he's given us for video games. I mean, opening thoughts on this one, Chris, I mean, what did you obviously make of this one? I mean, this is obviously his late 90s sort of jaunt, really. From here, he went off into Spider and sort of the start of that uh, social satire. So it's kind of like the end of the body horror era for Cronenberg, so. Yeah, this I 
I had never seen it. Um, I was really surprised by how much I enjoyed this. We talk about classic cinema connections. Cronenberg's really playing on the kind of the Hitchcockian wrong man, you know, having to be involved in extraordinary circumstances with Jude Law's character, Ted, having to be the one to protect Jennifer Jason Lee's character. You have a bit of film noir in there when they go into the game and they're having to investigate and, you know, she's kind of the femme fatale and he's the one having to kill people. There's a lot of classic film sensibility here. And, I was getting a lot of almost pre-Christopher Nolan, you know, when you have alternate realities and you're trying to figure out, are we in a current universe? How does the ending play out? Uh, The ending is essentially a cliffhanger with you wondering if it's reality or if it's not. To throw another James Cameron reference out there, very Total Recall is what I was kind of going with. And it's based on, there are... um, allusions to philip k dick who wrote who wrote total recall as well so i really enjoyed this it's a very lean 97 minutes i think with a lot of fast talking it does not waste a lot of time it and it's cronenberg i think at his most mature up until this point he's got the gross elements you know the the fleshy gaming pods that need to essentially be stimulated um (laughs) you know the bio ports that go into people's backs that have obviously some sexual connotations, which they say that this is kind of a companion to Videodrome um, from 83. And that also combined um, pop culture and television slash video gaming with um, body horror. I love Jennifer Jason Lee. She gave up being an eyes wide shut to be in this. <laughs> and I think she's so fantastic as this femme fatale kind of quick talking woman that actually has some agency we don't we see her in in jude law kind of acting as a team she's not necessarily in distress to the point where when she is saved you feel it's kind of derogatory to her character especially at the end and i love jude law when he he's playing kind of this befuddled buffoon who doesn't really know what he's doing um you know when they go to the chinese restaurant and he kills the waiter and he just says no everybody totally fine just go on with your lives um you know there's some good humor here um and it does call a lot to its own confusion Uh, i think there's a part at the end where they where they're actually talking and say that the film has that the the game quote unquote has too many twists i feel like i need to re to replay to figure out what i've and that's pretty much calling to the fact that this is a movie that you really have to watch more than once to be able to understand the twists and the turns that it takes even though that really happens in the last like 20 minutes or so the rest of the movie i i thought was very easy to follow and even though you're kind of questioning what world it takes place in i was never confused to the point where i was like somebody needs to tell me this now or i'm just done i mean i don't understand what you're saying it's a very straightforward tale but i mean it's you have to kind of like view it like you're watching a Fallujah movie you just have to go along for the ride you can't be questioning too much what you're seeing because a lot of it is a lot of it is very visual sort of based and these are the things that obviously excite Cronenberg such as we have seen such as the slaughterhouse where you've got various animal components being used to actually make the gaming pods at one point within the game and we also as you mentioned already we've got these fleshy gaming pods that twitch and quiver and have umbilical style cords that go into players backs so we have this 
the same sort of connection between human and technology, this melding of flesh and technology that we obviously saw in video drawing. I mean, no one's put in a video cassette into the stomach in this one, but you've definitely got yeah, that David, connection David there. Cronenberg, David Cronenberg was very fascinated by, be, by birthing, you know, and I, I saw the umbilical cords and it was, again, reminding me of something like The Brood, mm. you know, where, where Samantha Agar essentially births these these murderous little children. Um, so he's he's very interested in creation as being something that women can can do, but he also wants men to be able to do it. It's very weird, and I love it. <laughs> I mean, it's funny that we, also men, we talk about the umbilical cords. A couple of years after this film comes out, we have the release of the, the original Xbox. Now, the connection from the controller to the Xbox looks very similar to those umbilical cords except it's green. <laughs> so you have this umbilical like cord. I'm wondering, some of the experts that watch, watch the existence, it's like, that's what our console needs. We need to have umbilical cords that connect the player to the console. So it always makes me uh, think of the older school Xbox when I see this film. But I love the fact that while you're in the game, it, it looks exactly like reality. It's just you have these exceptional circumstances or you encounter a character and if you don't give them the right dialogue, they go on a loop. So they just stand there basically rolling their head. That kind of reminds you that you are in the game. And it's only when you give them the correct cue or the dialogue that they lead you on to the next part. And it's funny how Cronenberg plays up these obvious game elements, such as when Jude Law is obviously working in the slaughterhouse and he speaks to one of his co-workers and he sort of like gives him this clue. It's sort of like, I recommend the Chinese restaurant. <laughs> Make sure you have the special. And when you see the waiter and he's like, talking about the special and he's like the special is only for special occasions and he's like well, it's my birthday it's like a birthday is a special occasion and i love yeah, the mechanicalness Cron of that cronenberg, cronenberg almost seems to predict the world of gaming that we slowly started to create i think of i think of something like the sims when the sims first came out which is a, a game about nothing really it's just you create these people and you you know get to play god really mm. um and and now we have vr headsets and we have this gaming that actually puts you in locations or at least the feeling of it and cronenberg kind of gives us a world that's very similar where you get to create these avatars and if you want to play a game you know you can get involved in it or essentially you can just wander around you know uh allegra says that essentially you're just a tourist if you're playing by yourself so it's a kind of aimless world building where it's not really necessarily about playing for an objective although that's what we know has to happen but he's almost kind of predicting this kind of freeform sandbox gaming that is pretty much what we have in a lot of games today yeah i think certainly you can look at this game and certainly the roles that these uh, characters play and you can compare it to Second Life where people will take on the most menial yeah. jobs but this is the role that they've chosen to play within this game and it amuses me at the end when we and I'm just going to warn ahead both these films we will be going in spoilers so if you haven't seen either go rent them now because they're awesome um, but we are going to be probably ruining the hell out of these movies so apologies in advance um, obviously when we get to the end and we've got the Molson on the stage and you've got characters complaining that they weren't very involved in the story and that I think it's, um, uh, I can't remember his name, played Christopher Eccleston, 
who complains that he was just the guy there giving the presentation about the game and his role was very boring. And I think, well, this is the role you've chosen to play within this game. And it, that would obviously be comparable to Second Life, where people obviously do take on these very menial and boring tasks, but this is how they choose to play the game. I mean, you mentioned already that our main female lead here, um, I can't remember her name now, uh, Jennifer, Jennifer Jason Lee. Lee. Yeah, who, I think, this is probably, I think, along with Hateful Wait, this is probably one of her best performances that we've seen from her in a long time. And she, I mean, she totally dominates this film as this like neo-nymph and you can basically the way that Cronenberg tells us which reality we're in just based on the tightness of the curl of her hair so that when we're in reality she has like straight hair and when we're in sort of like the more deeper we are into the fictional worlds the more curly her hair is which I thought was always a nice touch but the symptoms she always seems to be in control of the situation where she mentioned already Jude Law's uh, company man he's just in this state of constant befuddlement, so he kind of represents the audience in that respect. Yeah, you you definitely. I, I love. I've I've. I think Jennifer Jason Lee is great when she's playing, just kind of these wide-eyed characters that have this air of knowledge to them. Like uh, if you've seen her performance in like Fast Times at Ridgemont High, you know yeah. that character that is worldly wise but still intrigued and by the world around her, and that's. That's Allegra, I think. It's great that we get a female game designer, even though the ending seems to negate that. But, you know, she's this woman who has commanded this power and has played God and is essentially being hunted down for it, which, you know, in today's current pop culture is not too far out of the realm of possibility. Um, And Jude Law is really the character that doesn't know anything. He's kind of the girl dragged around throughout this movie that has to learn all this stuff and she knows she's she's very streetwise and understands how things operate and even at the end you find out that Jude Law and her are really a team it's not you know Jude Law being the leader really it's still Jennifer Jason Lee's character's design and and plans even though they both execute them um, at the same time and I, I think she's just she's great in this, and I never understood why she wasn't. She's never been a bigger star because she's great in everything that I've seen. I have no idea either. She just she's just one of those actors. I guess like Elizabeth Shue, she just never really had that whatever it is to really sort of take it to the next level. And I just can't place it. I mean, just obviously to go back slightly to the point you were saying where you were felt that the ending negated the fact that she's obviously the female lead she's the the game designer i mean at the end the actual game designer he comments on the fact that only another designer would be able to play the game the way that she had so it seems to him that she is actually a game designer but she's perhaps a rival corporation or she's been hired by this whichever group it is to carry out the assassination we see being carried out on her at the beginning um and i again i just love the fact it it comes full circle we end with we start with one assassination attempt we end with another the fact that it ends on the line of are we actually playing in the game still um it's just the perfect ending for myself it's the fact that you think you're in uh reality but are you really yeah, yeah. I, I I love that there's this ambiguity to everything. You know, you're constantly questioning how deep the rabbit hole has gone. Again, very much like Total Recall, where you're wondering at what point does reality end and 
the dream starts or is this all straightforward and we're supposed to take everything as fact. I was really surprised by almost how restrained in the body horror this is. Because even though there are things going into people's bodies and again you have those fleshy pods, it doesn't go nearly as grotesque as I think he has in the past. You know, when she plugs into the the dying pod and her they she mentions that, you know, her port is infected, we get a little bit of of grossness, but it's not nearly kind of the eleven that that Cronenberg ramps it up to, which is I'm fine with, but I was really surprised by compared to something like Dead Ringers, where it does have the tendency to get really gross. um, (laughs) This is a bit more restrained. Yeah, it certainly is more restrained than his earlier movies, especially. Um, And I think with The Fly, it kind of set the benchmark for the height of his splatter interest, really. I don't think it's going to be possible to get for him to do anything more like grotesque than that even though we obviously have hints of it in other films we have like the exploding head in uh history of violence we got the whole sauna sequence in uh, eastern promises which... that scene i i rewatched that the other day and oh my gosh that scene still makes me cringe <laughs> <laughs> about to say did you now but yeah it's uh it, it's certainly a no holds barred and it's kind of Cronenberg, he didn't see the point. Why Why should you uh, hold back? I mean, that sort of fight is going to be bloody, it's going to be violent, and it is going to be very rough and tumble. I mean, he shoots for a very realistic edge, and I think that's why it's so shocking. We're not used to seeing violence portrayed with such a realistic edge to it. Um, sure, and I think I think Eastern Promises, you know, I know people giggle about, okay. you know, the, the, the nakedness, the nudity, and to me, I think that makes it all the more painful to watch because you're like, there is no barrier there. Every, like, slice, you can feel that. That's almost, like, visceral to the audience because you're like, there is no separation. It's all, anything, everything is in peril. <laughs> Very true. Um, obviously, with this one, I mean, we mentioned already we got the flesh pods. We do get, like, there's probably more grotesque things happening with the actual pods than there is actually to people mutating themselves. I mean, we obviously get uh, Ian Holmes' surgery scene on the pod. We get the little, we get the orifices which are being plugged into. Um, I think one of the most disturbing parts is when we get the infected pod which releases all the spores. I think that creeped me out more than anything in this film, but the real centerpiece and one of my favorite moments is uh, when we discovered the truth behind the special at the Chinese restaurant and that the different re- remains of the meal form this bio gun um, complete with human teeth bullets, which I just love the mechanical construction that that's portrayed by Jude Law as he's putting it together. And the fact he openly admits he's disgusted by what he's doing, but it's what the game wants him to do. So he's like forced to go along with it. And you see like the different parts of the gun slowly coming together. And the fact that he just instantly knows as soon as he's got that gun in his hand, what he's supposed to do and that he's supposed to kill the Chinese waiter for myself. That's if I was to like list my favorite Cronenberg moments, I think that'd be right up there in the top 10. So uh, yeah, I mean, did you have any particular favorite, gooey moments in this or just any particular oh, moments entirely really you know i think it was just the scenes of watching them have to like lick their fingers and <laughs> stick the bioport in each other's backs that and and of course there is a brief moment where jude law is kind of like sexually compelled 
to the port on Jennifer Jason Lee's back, and I was waiting for that because I'm like, you're not going to get through a Cronenberg movie without somebody wanting to get near the hole in somebody's body that's that's <laughs> not supposed to be where it should be. Um, so yeah, I, I think it's very interesting that Jude Law's character is afraid of being. He says he says he's afraid of being penetrated in that way, and it's something that presumably most people in this brave new world have and he's kind of this last holdout and of course it leads to Willem Dafoe in a really great campy scene where he's supposed to be the guy who gives it to him but it turns out it's bad so I I really liked that particular sequence um and I think the end is really really interesting when um the two turn on each other Mind you, it's supposed to be intentional, yeah. um, but just there's an air of comedy to it almost. You know, when uh, they're both, like, she says, you know, I knew you were the assassin from the get-go. And he's like, yes, but I knew you would know that, so I did this. And it's just this constant game of one-upsmanship where supposedly everybody knew everything in advance. And you're kind of thinking, how does that work out? <laughs> Yeah, it kind of becomes like a dinner party murder mystery at the yes. end. It's sort of like it's all like, oh, I knew you, the assassin, all along. And I love the fact that Cronenberg references how confusing the ending gets because when he has like, when the character's like, oh, I became kind of confused, and it's kind of like yeah. these people, the final people, are like a test audience. They're basically repeating, giving us what the audience is clearly feeling at the end. It's sort of like, yes, he acknowledges that the ending is confusing, so it's intentional in that way. It's not like he throws all this information at us and it feels like he doesn't know how to end. It's like, even when you think that he's just making stuff on the float, he pulls it back and he reminds you that he's completely in control of everything you're watching and seeing. He's very much the controller here of this warped little fancy that he's uh, crafting out for himself. And it's films like this which kind of make me miss the fact that he's moved away from body horror. And as I said, he's gone on to do more social satire sort of based projects. I would really would love to see him return to body horror because he's just so good at it. And he's not I, doing I, it in a splatter way like, like Raimi would. He's doing it in such an intelligent and interesting way. Well, and if he seems to be really good at kind of, especially with this movie, again, that kind, that film noir type of mystery where the characters are very clearly drawn, that the story is very convoluted. And considering his interest in period pieces and, you know, Hollywood history, I'd be interested to see him possibly do kind of a straightforward. I know Tarantino has talked about wanting to do a film noir um, or some type of gangster movie. I would love to see Cronenberg do a film noir because he seems to capture the cadence and the the unfolding of the story points without making it seem like it's a pastiche you know he's not he's he's playing on things without calling out to the fact that it's he's homaging past films yeah i think it'd be really good if he did in a while especially if he cast uh, vigo in it because then we would finally have the completion of our vigo trilogy that he obviously started with history of violence and eastern promises so to keep another crime movie and smelling vigo it would just make a perfect trilogy and especially if you said a noir, that sort of setting is different again from what we've seen in the previous two films. We've obviously got the gangster in hiding in the history of violence. We've got the undercover cop in the Vori Mafia. 
in Eastern Promises, and obviously a noir setting is something completely different again. So, I mean, would you be looking for a period piece or like a modern noir? Or I would be fine with anything. Uh, if if we were if we got Vigo and completed that, and we got Jeremy Irons and actually did a three <laughs> three films with him, um, I, I would be. Which Jeremy Irons has says he would love to work with Cronenberg again. Uh, I would, I would love to see that. Literally, that would be like my my ultimate movie right there. Well, yeah, I mean, Cronenberg is just constantly. There's something about the way actors work with him that he gets performances from that you just don't see, or he taps into a particular aspect to that particular that actor's persona, like. With Goblum in the fly, he really taps into sort of like the clumsy, charming nature, that bumbling, sort of mumbling uh, performance that, that Goblum gives. And he perfectly captures it when te- makes this the persona of Seth Brundle. I mean, a man who, who in his version of the fly, invents the technology, sequ- uh, the transport of technology, because he to combat motion sickness. That's his whole reason for creating the teleporter pods to begin with. Um, so. As I said, I've, I would love to see him team up with both both them again. Um, I think Ralph Fiennes would be another person I would love to see him do more with as well, especially after Spider, uh, his much-overlooked 2002 film. So, But, um, yeah, it's, I don't know with Graham, but he just constantly teases us with these ideas of things he's going to have, and then we just have to wait forever and a day for him to... Uh, come back from wherever he's disappeared to to uh to do to do something or to give us a hint of something that's to come so yeah i think it's remarkable that he's still able to get fantastic actors but his movies have successively gotten smaller budgets and smaller distribution which i'm sure you know you don't have the tight reins of a studio telling you what to do but then at the same time you're limited in terms of how wide your movie goes so um, I, I don't know if that's something he enjoys or not, but either way, anytime Cronenberg wants to make a movie, I will naturally seek it out. We're going to take a quick break, though. So when we return, we're going to be going back to 1988 for a double. Of, we're going to get twice the Jeremy Irons as we're going to be looking at Dead Ringers. Listen to The Lair of the Unwanted on iTunes, and you can hear me, Jason Soto, use the F word. French? No. Fudge? Uh, sort of, but no. Frank? No. Fridge? No. Faruka Balk? Wh- what? No. Arfid Nugan? Jeez, <sighs> no. Alright, what F word could you possibly be talking about? I'm talking about in the layer of the unwanted, covering the movies you don't want to see and more on iTunes. And we're back. Uh, Stu joining me in the studio is obviously Kristen Lopez tonight. Hello, everybody. Uh, in the first half, we looked at David Cronenberg's 1999 film Existence. We're now obviously going to go back to 1988 for Dead Ringers, a psychological body horror. Here starring Jeremy Irons playing twin roles as a pair of identical twins and gynecologists, uh, Elliot and Beverly Mantle. The film itself, based on the book Twins by Barry Wood and Jack Gleason, uh, the book itself was based on, again, it was a pair of identical twins and also gynecologists, Stuart and Cyril Marcus, who died under somewhat mysterious circumstances. And from that, Cronenberg 
basically derived the film which we have with Dead Ringers, which is not so much based on, but more inspired by uh, the book Twins. In fact, within the book, he actually took uh, more inspiration from Zeros and Noughts rather than the book itself. And, I mean, this film itself is rated as being one of uh, Korean director Chuck Pan Wook, uh, the director of Lady Vengeance and Old Boy. It's named as one of his favourite Cronenberg movies. And revisiting it, revisiting it now, certainly as an older viewer, I can understand why, because certainly when I watched it originally, I think it was a little too subtle for my younger self, who was probably hoping for more splatter and gore and sort of the vein of Cronenberg's early movies, when here we actually get a much more subtle movie. Yeah. Um, um, oh, I was, did I totally go over your No, point? no, no. Please, please, uh, Christine. Oh, I was going to say, well, this this came out the year I was born, which is funny because uh, it's pretty much got two of my favorite things in it. Um, and I don't mean the dueling Jeremy Irons. Um, somebody told me uh, when I was about 16 that there was a movie that had both Jeremy Irons and Genevieve Bujold in it. And I said, oh, my God, what is this movie? Because, A, I love Jeremy Irons. And, B, I love Genevieve Bujold. She will always be Anne Boleyn from End of the Thousand Days. Um, so I will almost watch her in anything because I think she's amazing. And I realized that there was a movie that had both of them, directed by David Cronenberg, of all people. And I said, I need to find this movie as quickly as possible. This movie was very hard for me to find in the early 2000s because I think Criterion to put it out on DVD initially, and then that had gone out of print. And it wasn't until the last couple of months that they actually put this out on Blu-ray. Um, so the only copy I had up until like November when the Blu-ray came out was a less than legit copy that I had gotten from a friend who had copied the Criterion disc. Um, so, so yeah, this movie I love. I love this movie to bits. Um, not just out of personal bias, but there, there's that too. Um, I just, I, I think it's a very well written film. It's a to- amazingly well performed film, and, and it's both incredibly creepy and incredibly intriguing. There's a lot of weird sexiness to it, um, which is why I can watch this and Lolita from '97 and be like, "Yep, you know what this." This is peak Jeremy Irons, where it's always creepy, but it's still hot at the same time. And I feel dirty and feel like I probably shouldn't declare that to people, but I do anyway. Um, so, yeah, I love it. I love this movie so much. Yeah, it's, um, I mean, as you said, it's, I think this is one of those standout Jeremy Irons roles. I mean, you have to remember, obviously, this back in 1988, horror is still very much a dirty word, especially to the Academy Awards board. And they overlooked this when, I think, it's undeniable when you watch this film you wonder why Jeremy Irons didn't get an Oscar nod I mean it's hard to say whether he should have got it for leading actor or supporting actor Um, it's always kind of weird when you see an actor playing against himself to uh, know where that actually falls but here Cronenberg avoids all the usual cliches of seeing like an actor do something like play baseball with themselves and instead gives us Ellis and Beverly basically doing everything else with themselves. So if you want to see Jeremy Irons engaging in, you know, group sex with himself or doing drugs <laughs> with himself or, you know, performing operations on himself, then this is very much the movie for you. For you. Um, yeah, there's, I, I want, I love rewatching this now 
especially on Blu-ray when with the image cleaned up, it's remarkable to see how, you know, often today with CGI, you can really tell when an actor is performing opposite nothing or, you know, like a ball on a stick. You know, eye lines don't match up. It's very evident when an actor is is playing opposite something that's obviously going to be added in post. Yeah. And here, it never feels like that. You feel like you're actually watching two characters, two unique created characters that are inhabiting the same frame, that were in the same scene together. I mean, that's what's amazing. Um, and Jeremy Irons says that he walked differently when he's one. He's on the balls of his feet when he's one of the twins and he's on his heels when he's on the other to give him like an extra like inch or two of height. Um, but but I just it's amazing the fact that you can believe that there's two and that, yeah, they do devolve into cliche. One is, you know, sexy ladies man, Jeremy Irons. One is sexy, kind of meek and mild Jeremy Irons. And it never feels like cliche, cliche, though. It's understandable why they are the way they are. Yeah, they're very much the the two uh, separate souls of one, form one person. Um, I mean, we obviously have the scene where Elliot uh, respond, when after Beverly's return from having having their uh, sex with uh, with Claire, and he says that you obviously haven't fucked her, so I've fucked her. This idea that they can only they have to share everything. They have to. They've not experienced uh, something until they both experienced it. The the fact they constantly have to balance and be in sync with each other, and we obviously see that towards the end of the film, where obviously you have Elliot throwing himself into a drug haze alongside Beverly to try and synchronize the blood, so to speak, and the fact that they end up swapping roles essentially with Elliot and sending into drug crazed paranoia and Beverly coming out of his own and sobering up. Um, it's just a fascinating the relationship between these two right from the start they're very clinical the way they view the world and that they're brilliant Decina's been brilliant right from the start there's no qualms made about uh just the intelligence that these two have even though it often it seems that once we meet them again in adult life that Elliot is very much more the businessman and Beverly is very much the brains behind the operation. Beverly's the one doing the gynecological operations and Elliot's kind of like the salesman. Um, yeah, there's to, to go along with Cronenberg, you know, we talk about, you know, in Crash and, and existence and the fact that he likes to explore the taboos of, of sexuality and all of that. I mean, really, this is a movie about an incestuous relationship. They don't actually have sex with each other, but <laughs> you can you can tell that essentially the the females are a buffer. Like that's what it is. It's the ultimate act of masturbation is that they just want to have sex with each other. And so, you know, I, I know a lot of people say that the ending doesn't go as dark as it probably should have, but I still think it's pretty grim because. You have these two characters that, yeah, they can't live individual lives. They're just so incestuously tied to each other um, that the only way they can really sever each other is through the clinical process of actually, like, hacking each other to pieces. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, that to separate the Siamese twins, to, uh, to quote them, where obviously... 
Elliot's volunteers to be killed and Beverly basically, basically disembowels him using these uh, sort of uh, gynecological tools that he's developed. Because obviously Beverly is part of his relationship with Claire. He kind of goes onto this downward spiral that only becomes worse when she essentially leaves him to go off to film a movie. But she, as when he meets her, he obviously uh, starts dabbling with her prescription pills and you know obviously having access to said prescription pills is able to fund his own habit and through that we obviously then go very much into more traditional Cronenberg territory and he's having delusions about mutant women with abnormal genitalia and creating these bizarre gynecological instruments that look like something that the Marquis de Sol would probably daydream about. I, w- I was going to say, it looks like um, like H.R. Geiger, something out of Awe. It does. It's. I mean, it wouldn't surprise me if Giga didn't have some sort of, uh, some sort of uh, hand in creating some of this, because these tools have seemed very familiar to a lot of Giga's work. I mean, when you look at things such as like the birth machine, there's... These like biomechanical uh, appendages, especially the claw-like uh, instrument, which seems to play such a central focus of these of these tools. Um, yeah, and and we we talk about you know the concept of playing God in existence with Jennifer Jason Lee's character, and really Beverly and Elliot are gods in their realm. You know, they're making women fertile. Um, the the fact that they're gynecologist I think is both a terrifying as a woman that is just probably one of the most uncomfortable experiences ever and looking at the things they make I'm just like oh dear god knowing where those are supposed to go that's <laughs> horrible thought and they're dressed like the Spanish Inquisition you know like the the blood red honestly I think I've, I've made the argument before that it's almost like a feminist fear tale you know the fact that you know, you have these characters that are dressed like inquisitors judging you based on your ability to have children or your inability to have children. The, you know, just the fact that they're in such intimate settings as doctors, you're sitting there like, okay, as a woman, it just feels very judgy, um, which is why I, I think Genevieve Bujold is kind of the unsung third part of that movie because she's playing the straight man, but she's also playing the character that is open to criticism throughout the entire movie and is almost kind of the scapegoat for them which is where re-watching it this last time I kind of said well I don't really like either of them because they both kind of you know one's jealous that the other uh that, that Claire has taken the one brother away or that she leaves and then he goes into drugs because she's gone you know they both use her as an excuse yeah. Um, and, and part of their job is acting as these judges of women's ability to procreate. So it, it almost feels like I probably could make an argument there that Cronenberg saying, you know, something about, you know, male judgment of women's bodies <laughs> and how that's inappropriate and wrong. Well, I mean, the fact that the gynecologist caused Cronenberg no end of issues when it came to trying to cast the movie. I mean, Robert De Niro was offered the role and he turned it down, same as William Hurt, because neither of them wanted to play gynecologist for a start. And I think that they were lucky to obviously get uh, Genevieve to sign on for this as well, because obviously this is a film where we see her in rather, several rather intimate situations. So... It's again a real credit to herself as an actress, let alone to 
go into the descriptions of her trifunicated cervix, which is in one of the most, uh, should we say, more randomly humorous scenes that she's discussing with um, Beverly over dinner. I think it's Beverly over here. I think Elliot, I always get the two confused. It's, you know, them being identical twins, it doesn't help. Uh, but when they're having the discussion and her agent's just completely disgusted at this dinner, that that, that they could be so openly talking about uh, her cervix that he just gets up and leaves. But at the same yeah, time... Yeah, proof, proof positive that, yeah, men, you know, and it, you go into, again, current events, men making medical decisions for women and having no tact whatsoever. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the fact is, you know, as I said, it's, gynecolog- uh, it's gynecologists, it's makes men uh, feel slightly uncomfortable when we have those those sequences throughout the film. And it's always interesting to see what female Cronenberg fans obviously view these scenes scenes as being, because certainly we have I've, what I can assume to be one of the most horrifying situations where we've got a paranoid and prescription-fueled um, Beverly going on kind of a rampage during a surgery when his own staff are basically cutting on to the fact that perhaps not uh, everything's all right with him. And he goes into this rage, actually beating up a patient while she's, uh, she's under just so he can, uh, hock a, hock a few gas of her, um, Entinox. Yeah, there's, it's, and I don't have the exact timeline in front of me, but I, I want to say, cause I've, I've seen many of the Jeremy Irons movies from the early 80s, and they're very hammy and very stagey. Um, And this, I think, is kind of like the first serious film, and then after this, it's just like big movie, big movie, big movie, Um, and Oscar somewhere in there. Um, So it's, it's amazing to watch this, and then again, something, you know, like M. Butterfly or Lolita, and just realize that, you know, Jeremy Irons pretty much made a career off of playing, like, crazy vaguely disturbing characters that you know what as a young girl you can't help but be drawn to and you're not really sure why <laughs> that's just me though yeah i mean looking obviously at his career before then i think slightly before this we've obviously got him starring in 1986 submission um i still have to see that that's one of the few i have not seen yeah we watched it in film class it's okay um they made a big thing of the guy going over the waterfall strapped to the, the cross that was apparently very important in a film class to <laughs> look at that um, same way that they made us watch Last of the Mohicans which apparently was very important to them our viewing as well but you know we won't go into that <laughs> but uh, yeah as you said I mean it's really kind of him going on to, this is really sort of marking him moving into being like uh, a more serious actor. I mean, he's going to do things such as Down the Champion of the World. Uh, further on from that, he's doing things such as like Kafka, um, Damage, and Butterfly. Then got him showing up in 1994 in The Lion King and Die Hope of a Vengeance. Um, Two awesome movies that you should totally watch back to back. Yep. <laughs> Jeremy Irons in a vest. Yes. Good times. Uh, and then obviously it's Lolita in 1997. And from there, it kind of goes off into more hammier roles he goes into more hammier and more predictable sort of roles um well yeah. he had to be able to buy that castle somehow how do we how do we expect that to happen i suppose so but uh yeah he's it's really from there i mean he from there he just kind of turns up in interesting places 
Um, you obviously have some of those more predictable sort of roles where he's like showing up in like things such as like Kingdom of Heaven and Merchants of Venice, and even like turns up for a few episodes of Law and Order Special Victims Unit. So, yep. But, uh, <laughs> I'm like, I'm just crossing off, seen that, haven't seen that. I still have, I I think I have several movies left. I'm trying to get through the filmography, but yeah. Well, he makes a very good... The good, the bad, and the the what the hell. (laughs) He makes a very good Alfred in uh, Batman vs. Superman. I would have gone through life never seeing that if, yeah, he wasn't in that. He's the only saving grace of that movie, in my opinion. Okay. I think that's (laughs) that's a film for another session because i actually really enjoyed it i watched over the christmas break because i don't watch a lot of mainstream cinema i use christmas as my opportunity to catch up and everything i miss throughout the year so obviously with um i watched like i think i watched like nine superhero movies over the christmas break it was just like one after the other and i really enjoyed batman versus superman so but um, yeah i think it's i i personally find it disturbing to find out that lolita the movie from 97 is turning 20 this year and i just secretly like die a little inside and i'm like am i that old god i remember watching that when i was like 17 and realizing that i was incredibly weird (laughs) that's a coming of age movie for a lot of young uh, girls my age and i'm i'm really not sure why but it is it is it's a tricky one to talk about lolita uh people tend to con on to the one obvious factor of that that film and uh Unless they're familiar with the book or have actually seen the film, it's hard yeah. to get people to discuss or to talk about that film past that. Well, sort of I, I am I am planning a ticklish business anniversary episode where we will be comparing both versions of Lolita, so the '60s Kubrick version and the '97. And for me, having and having read the book, neither movie captures the book. Um, because the book is very bleak and very dark humor and Lolita is in the book very ugly and very yeah. annoying and younger. Um, she's like 12, I think, in the book. Um, and in the 60s version, because you have the code still, it's a little too silly. You know, Sue Lyon looks like she's 21 and uh, De- uh, Peter Sellers is playing like four or five characters and it's a little ridiculous. I know that that's probably the closest in spirit to the novel, but um, and then the '97 version is very pretty and very romanticized, and I'm sitting there thinking, I'm not really sure the intended effect of this movie is supposed to to be what what we're presented with. But it is my the '97 is my favorite version for various reasons. One of which is the fact that it is very beautiful to look at. It's very swoony, and it's completely inappropriate. But it was able to be in '97. I mean, obviously, on the subject of Jeremy Irons and still, I mean, obviously, back to Dev Ringers, I mean, obviously, Cronenberg's other favourite subject being sex. We get some mild S&M sex here. We get uh, to see tourniquet, uh, tourniquet rubbers being used to uh, strap, her, strap Genevieve yep. to the bed. I was like, uh, again, having seen this at, like, 16 years old, I was like... and. End of the thousand days. I'm like, wait, what am I, what am I watching here? And then I think like two or three years later, I watched Damage, and I said, God, Dead Ringers was tame for my poor little psyche. <laughs> I don't know. It's it has some risque moments in this. I mean, it's not. I think that's about as explicit as it really kind of gets. But oh, and the scene where they almost have 
that she uh, almost sleeps with both brothers at the same time. I think that probably would have gone down a more inter- another interesting tact. Um, yeah, but I, I think you would have been pressing the bounds of the R rating for 88 because I, I'm not sure how lenient we were with the R at that point, but... I know, I know. There's taboo, and then there's like scandalous taboo, and I think that might have pushed it there. Yeah, I mean, this film, it throughout its production, it was very troubled. I mean, it took it took really around ten years uh, to to get the film going, and it was one of those stories that Cronenberg was sure that someone else would like pick up because he'd been following it, and he, I mean, the title itself was taken from an Esquire article he read on the case. Um, the original title obviously being Twins, which he originally uh, had the rights to, but actually sold them to Ivan Rittman so he could use it for his Arnold Schwarzenegger Daniel DeVito vehicle. And it was really sort of after that 10-year period that no one had actually tried to make this film. They actually took it upon himself to see. And during the production, they ran out of money and they ended up having to rent the set uh, because it would have cost more to dismantle it and then rebuild it. So they essentially rented out the set to anyone who was like shooting music videos in the area. So, um, and because it had to be set to all these particular specifications because of the camera to create the twinning effect, they had to build the set so, so that the effect could be created. They, so there was all these continuous issues throughout uh, the production. And I think it's a minor miracle, the fact that let alone just due to the subject matter. I mean, again, this is about gynecologists. This is something that's considered icky to the mainly male-dominated uh, producing industry. So the fact that we actually got this film produced is kind of something of a minor miracle. And while it's certainly subtler and it's, and it's more suggestive in its, those Cronenberg elements, I still think it's... I don't know, it's a, it's a sad movie and a fascinating movie at the same time. And I think it took me a couple of watches to really fully take it all in um because in the first watch it the pacing seemed kind of off and that second watch it kind of like it really all sort of uh came together for myself so I don't yeah know. when we when we talk about Cronenberg always having going back to relationships I mean if the fly is I always kind of call it yeah about having a, a significant other that's got a terminal illness or you know uh the brood being about a divorce this movie is really about having a partner that's you know addicted to drugs and how it's really a drug film i mean you put this next to something like requiem for a dream or uh you know rush it's in similar territory you know especially in that that third act yeah it's well, I mean, I, I, the fact that when you see Beverly, this is someone who's like so in control of his emotions and the fact that just one bad relationship can send him down this this dark hole that essentially tears the tears the brothers apart um, because she sends him on this this destructive path. And it's not so much for anything she's doing. It's through being around him, this influence that being around me caused him to, you know, start dabbling in her in her drugs and uh develop this obsession with her that obviously leads him to his own form of self-destruction really so i mean do you think claire is to blame for beverly going off into this downward spiral or do you think it's just beverly's 
nature, the fact that he's got so little experience in the way he chooses to view relationships compared to obviously his brother, who's very sort of cold and able to have sport lays and, and whatnot with, and have relationships with women without worrying about this sort of connection that you think it's just the way that he, his inability to handle a relationship that uh, is more to blame. I always say it's it's why I say that I think her character is a scapegoat because I I always interpret it as his need to have some experience that's not that's something that he's created that he's engaged in that if anything his brother will follow as opposed to lead. So I don't necessarily see her as the one to blame. I just think that it's easy to blame the character or for them to blame the characters. Why I think maybe, you know, Cronenberg is kind of playing with, with something passing for feminism in this movie. I'm not not saying it is, but just the fact that, you know, we, she's kind of the Eve, you know, presenting original sin to a character that is relatively straight edge as we're introduced to him in the beginning. Yeah. Okay. I mean, the only other two questions I really have, uh, in the film is obviously the scene where we see Elliot have hire twin escorts uh, here played by Jill Hennessy Bill in which is uh, these twin escorts are played by both herself and her real life twin sister um, they turn up as a pair of prostitutes and I wonder why we have the scene of him having sex with another set of twins was included and also how we're supposed to believe um, Beverly what kills Beverly in the end because obviously we see him pull himself out of his drug haze you know he cleans himself up and he phones Claire and doesn't actually say anything to her on the phone and then goes back into the apartment and dies in his brother's arms he just suddenly drops dead uh, but there's no obviously reason given why he would suddenly uh, drop dead I know that in the actual case it was the fact that it was withdrawal from uh, drugs that actually killed the second brother um when they actually discovered the two brothers uh, one was found mutilated on the floor the other was found face down on the bed uh for, suffering from the suffering a death from obviously drug withdrawal but just uh to answer the question i mean obviously we have this final scene which actually mirrors quite accurately and probably the closest uh, connection we have to the book the actual death of the original twins um their death uh mark sorry uh Stuart and Cyril Marcus's death obviously matching very similar to Elliot and Beverly Mantle's death at the end of this film. So, I mean, how did you uh, view those those two scenes? Well, they kind of foreshadow it when they talk about Chang and Ang, the, the Siamese twins, and how one just died um, after the other, pure, either out of fright or out of, you know, the, the medical version, which is that, you know, the you have a, essentially a dead body stuck to you and it's just natural for your body to then ebb and die, which happens to um, conjoined twins quite a lot. So I always interpreted it as just the fact that without one, the other cannot live. You know, it's, it's either a broken heart or the fact that they are, you know, their souls are kind of tied together and that there's no reason to live without the other. So I always interpret it as, you know, they just, they can't exist apart. They can't be separated medically because something telepathic or, you know, otherworldly keeps them bound to each other. Cool. 
And Jamie Irons having sex with uh, with twin <laughs> prostitutes. That's <laughs> um, otherwise known as a Wednesday. I'm assuming in Jeremy Irons' life. Oh no. Um, <laughs> Um, I think it's narcissism. I mean, that character is supposed to be very narcissistic. And I, it's why I say, you know, the fact that they have this kind of incestual relationship is kind of the ultimate act of masturbation. Um, you know, I think it's just a means of having that thing that they can't do, which is to essentially be with each other. Yeah. And uh, it surprised me the fact that he's so willing to cover for his brother. He knows his brother's not safe to be committed doing surgery on anyone yet he allows him to get on it i mean he even goes into a medical hearing pretending to be his brother um saying that he was basically the fact that he was under duress and overexertion that he'd had this you know little slip up uh so to speak and the fact that the he tries to get them off it that way i mean it it surprised me the fact that at no point he ever tries to step in to sort of curb his brother's like destructive nature. Uh, the only time he seems to like like tell him off or chastise him at all is when it somehow affects him, such as the fact that he's going off in this relationship and that he's not involved in it. Um, as I said, bringing back to that wonderful comment of you've not fucked her till we both fucked her. Yeah, and I, I think that the the movie has these weird moments of humor in them that makes the ending, you know, I think the movie could be very depressing if there's, there wasn't some semblance of levity. And I, I just, I got to throw out the, the shout out that Jeremy Irons dance sequences need to happen more often because they have, there's a, there's a very brief one in this movie that is again, the fact that they, he, they, he just wants to bang himself. Um, which, you know, that's all well and good. Um, there's a chick in there, but she kind of seems superfluous. <laughs> um, but, yeah, Jeremy Irons dancing. Let's, we need more of that. I need more Jeremy, scenes of Jeremy Irons getting excited about watching Jerry Springer. I didn't think I would I, ever exactly, see that. No, no, but I think, uh, actually, the, this, this rewatch, I actually tweeted uh, to a friend of mine because I was watching it, and I'm all... Jeremy Irons is eating pizza in this movie. I'm like, the, that man does not eat pizza, okay? No. I'm assuming everything is like, you know, pheasant and like weird old-timey food, okay? Pizza does not enter his, you know, refrigerator. It oh, was yeah. very odd to me. It's like in High Fidelity where uh, he describes uh, Catherine Zeta-Jones' character and he's like, she's in the fucking phone book. She belongs in Venus. She doesn't yeah. deserve to be in a phone book. So when you see Jeremy Irons like doing something, I don't know that Completely we can. normal. <laughs> yeah, it, when we see Jeremy Irons slumming it, eating pizza, and going Springer's on, <laughs> we just like he's one of us. <laughs> he has normal whims that wants to eat pizza and watch Springer, and not just yeah. eat pheasant and be highbrow all the time. Exactly. Yeah, he needs to be pretentious. Like that—that's—that's that's all I'm anticipating here. Cool. I mean, is there anything else that uh, you want to discuss about Deringers? It's awesome. Everybody should go watch it. Uh, I recommend the Blu-ray because the the transfer is great, and there's Jeremy Irons audio commentary, which I still need to listen to. I'm very excited to uh, give the movie another look, uh, preferably with his dulcet tones. Yeah, you don't even need the film. Just you know, have it on in the car. 
Exactly. Well, you know, that's that's how I, I became a Jeremy Irons fangirl. My mother actually listened to Lolita on tape, and he re- reads the book on tape. And I was sleeping one day, and I woke up, and I had, yeah, Jeremy Irons' voice in my head. And I woke up, and I was never the same. So that's how it's done. Okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Um, further viewing, if you do enjoy the existence or Dev Ringers, I mean, where do we go from here? I mean, while we could obviously do further watching for each film individually, I think they're both Cronenberg movies. They're both similar, but obviously on different subjects and different sides to the Cronenberg. But if you obviously enjoy the this sort of aspect to Cronenberg, I mean, where do we go from here, really? Uh, what's the next sort of further viewing? Well, I always I always say that if you enjoy Dead Ringers, then go back and watch um, and Butterfly. It's again another beautifully shot film, very bleak, but beautifully shot. And Jeremy Irons is really great in it, and John Lone is amazing. It's a, a beautiful film um, that I don't think it's nearly the appreciation. It's kind of I think one of the bigger outliers. I know most people have at least have an awareness of, of Dead Ringers, but I don't know a lot, a lot of people at all who knew that they adapted M. Butterfly, let alone that Cronenberg did it. So I always recommend that um, as a good kind of classy, you know, it's a very straightforward film. There's not a lot of body horror to it. But then The Fly, of course, um, I always say The Brood is really good. Um, I know a lot of people like Scanners. I think Scanners is okay. I think the ending <laughs> is the best part of Scanners more than anything else. No, uh, not the exploded head. I was going to say, yeah, the I thought, is that not the end? Because it's <laughs> no, been a long time start. since I've seen Scanners. Oh, okay. Well, and then Eastern Promises, I always throw out there. Again, it's um, it's such a brutal film. Vigo's great. It's got Jeremy Irons' wife in it, if you need a continuation. Um, and, yeah, I, so those are the ones I always recommend. Cool. I mean, if you're looking for another director to obviously move on from Cronenberg, I'm going to go for a bit of a wildcard entry and recommend you check out the work of Shinya Tsukamoto, who is probably best known for directing Tetsuo the Iron Man, which would obviously give you the body horror link there as the we have the man turning into man-machine metal, um, which obviously was followed up by two sequels. We had Tetsuo 2, Body Hammer, and Tetsuo 3, The Bullet Man. Whereas if you want the Dev Ringers, so you want something a little more sexual, a little more uh, art house filth, um, then I would certainly recommend that you check out A Snake of June, which is not only shot in a wonderful monochrome, but certainly deals with sex in a very artistic fashion, very similar to the way we were seeing in Dev Ringers. It's dealing uh, with similar sort of themes and as this, as we see the sexual awakening of this uh, meek weak woman by a strange man with on his own personal filth mission or just watch it um but yeah uh, Shinzo Tsukamoto he's along with like the likes of uh Takashi Miike he's one of those directors who both scares and excites in equal measure and while his films are certainly perhaps more artistic than Miike's um he's certainly one of those key directors especially when we look at the Asian invasion of the early 2000s and he was coming across with films like Tetsuo and obviously uh, Snake of June and Bullet Ballet these films obviously providing the intro to uh, his small but still very essential uh, body of work 
Kristen, it's been an absolute pleasure, obviously, having you on the show as always. Uh, if people want to come and find your work, where's the best place to uh, find you? Um, I'm on Twitter at journeys underscore film. You can check out my classic film blog at journeysandclassicfilm.com. And I'm always on, uh, if you want to download Ticklish Business, you can do it at ticklishbusiness.podbean.com. Cool. And in, I mean, what have you got sort of coming up uh, ahead of you? Well, Todd and I just recorded the latest Walt sent me. We were talking about Enchanted. So that should be coming out in the next couple of days. I have a belated uh, Ticklish Business episode hopefully coming out. It was supposed to come out this Wednesday, but family problems prevented that. So hopefully it'll come out next Wednesday. It's a tribute to Cary Grant. Uh, I guest hosted with The Vern who uh, talks about our top three Cary Grant films. And uh, over at Journeys and Classic Film, I'm hoping to finish out Fridays with Debbie Reynolds, which is technically today, but I'm hoping hoping to get it out today or at least this weekend, uh, talking about one more of her films. Cool. Yeah, um, both uh, fantastic shows. I've been lucky enough to uh, guest on both. Uh, Walt Semi were talking right. about Edward, which was uh, a lot of fun. And uh, most recently... For your Christmas show, I got to uh, talk about Mimi in St. Louis, which was, you know, kind of a break from what I normally watch, but it's still a lot of fun. So uh, it's uh, definitely an interesting show, especially if you're not familiar with classic cinema. You provide a very easy entry point for Bloodites like myself, who probably don't know a lot about classic cinema, to uh, obviously discover more about these films and uh, provide that interesting jumping in point, really, for these films. So, uh yeah, I'm very excited to obviously see where you go with both your shows and obviously we should write them as well. But uh, thank you again for coming on, Christian. Uh, hopefully we'll get you back on again soon. Yeah, we, you and I have a lot of uh, films we've talked about doing, so hopefully hopefully I will be back. Yes. Um, in the meantime, the, uh, you can obviously follow the show if you aren't already. You can uh, follow me on Twitter, which is at Owen underscore Jones. Uh, you can follow us on Facebook, uh, which is under my main blog page from the Depths DVD Hell. Uh, the blog, as always, is from the depths of dvdhell.blogspot.co.uk. Um, over on uh, Channel Super o, we're still continuing the Buffy recaps. We're now in season five. Um, so we've just started that, and that's all very exciting. And you, if you want to hear me talk about classic video games, uh, you can find some reviews over at thatmomentin.com, as well as the video game podcast I uh, host with Kim Lowe of Tranquil Dreams, which is obviously uh, Game Warp. Uh, which you can find available on YouTube as well as iTunes and Podomatic. So, uh, and uh, this is Edward Jones, signing off for another edition of my Bad Down at Strange Showcase. Remind you, as always, to keep it strange. Mm-hmm.